Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently written his first book, which is titled, What to Do with Worry, Why Playing God Never Works. You can find Olin's book on ChristianFocus.com and Amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. Open up to Genesis chapter 42. And we're going to continue here with a saga, really, of Jacob and Joseph and his brothers. A lot going on here. Um, remember the whole series, the idea is we started in Genesis 3 with the fall of man. And that any time we sin, there is a natural uh, desire to cover up, to hide somewhere, which is not a bad desire. Uh, but we often have bad applications trying to hide in kind of our own efforts and strategies rather than hiding in God's prescription. Um, so remember uh, where this kind of saga in some sense of Jacob started out and Jacob and Joseph and his brothers. Jacob idolized Joseph as kind of the favorite son. That didn't go over well. The brothers hated him. Jacob ends up now prime minister of Egypt in a sense we're picking up in the middle of this famine. Okay, so um, let's start in Genesis chapter 42 and we'll start in verse 3. Then ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. So, again, I really do think Jacob was converted in the Old Testament sense in Genesis chapter 32. But just like us, just because you are genuinely converted doesn't mean all of your sinful patterns go away. And here he is still kind of idolizing. Uh, He was idolizing Joseph. Joseph died, so he decides, well, I'll idolize his younger brother, Benjamin. He kind of puts all of his hopes and dreams into him. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was one, the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, Where have you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them and said to them, You were spies. You have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. Then they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Yet he said to them, No, but you have come to look at the undefended Offended parts of our land, but they said, Your servants are twelve brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan, and behold, the youngest one is with our father today, and one is no longer alive. Now, what's going on here? In some sense, Joseph, and, and not in a bad way, actually in a good way, is acting like God, and he's testing them to see if they've rep- really repented, to see if they are genuinely sorry about their sin and really want to change. And so in a sense, he's putting them through a test. But God sometimes puts us through very similar things. Skip down to verse 19. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go, carry grain for the famine of your household and bring your youngest brother to me so your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. Then they said... To one another, truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. So there's a sense in which they're like, what goes around comes around. (laughs) Uh, The the guilt has started to settle in their soul. 
and there's some degree of sorrow, of ownership of their sin. They're not trying to hide it. Okay, um, Skip down to verse 25. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to restore every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey, and thus it was done for them. So they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed from there. As one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money, and behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. And then he said to his brothers, My money has been returned, and behold, it is even in my sack. And their hearts sank, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? So they feel like everything is against them. Verse 29, And when they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, So they repeat the story to him, Skip down to verse 35. Now it came about as they were emptying their sacks that behold, every man's bundle of money was in the sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were dismayed. Their father Jacob said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more because he was the one that got stuck behind in prison until Benjamin could come as proof. And you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father saying, You may put my two sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my care and I will return him to you. But Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he alone is left. Now just pause there. Imagine saying this to your nine other sons. Joseph is dead and now I only have Benjamin. It's like, what are we, chopped liver? I mean, it's just so self-centered. If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Now, what do we see here? We, we see people living driven by fear. And, and so many people today, even genuine Christians, if we could get down into the deepest motivational drive of their heart, it's fear. And I'm not talking about the godly fear of the Lord. I'm talking about fear that God is against me. This kind of sink, sink, uh, sneaking suspicion, God is out to get me, God is out to hurt me, right? This whole chapter is Jacob's like, ah, I, don't, I really don't want to send anybody down, and they finally do send people down, and then the brothers come back, okay, and they feel guilty, they feel fear, oh no, our money's been returned, what's going on? This is going to go bad, we got to go back, we got to take Benjamin back, and his dad's like, no way you're taking Benjamin. I'd rather just die in the famine than you go back with Benjamin. Just let Simeon rot in a prison. All driven by fear. And did you notice how Jacob said, all things are against me? When you try to live based off of your own strategies to cover your sin, your shame, the hurt in life, you will feel like the whole universe is conspiring against you. You will start to take all things very personally. Okay, And our sinful, self-protective strategies, they're often suicidal. I mean, because what this meant is, if you don't send Benjamin back, you don't get any more food. Now, they may not know it, but we know it. The famine's going to last for seven years, right? If they had stuck with his strategy, it's a death strategy. I'll just give a couple practical examples of what this looks like in modern-day life. Okay? Um, there was a woman uh, that my wife and I were ministering to at one point, and she had had a very bad relationship with her mom growing up, abusive, I mean, all, all kinds of mess and, and, and not reconciled and her mom was still very controlling and manipulative and she's talking about this and then in the, kind of the middle of telling us this story and all the pain and heartache it was still bringing in her life she said but I'll never do anything to hurt my mom it's like really after all that but that, that was kind of her strategy is the way that I survive is I do everything I have to to keep my mom happy but that strategy 
my wife and I, standing on the outside, could see, was literally ruining her whole life. But that was the strategy she had decided to live by, and it was ruining her. Okay? Imagine this, okay? Maybe none of us are dealing with that. Okay? But um, we had, this, this happened years ago, we had a guy on our staff team, because of some sexual sin, uh, we had to fire and so uh, we, we gathered all the staff guys together after that and just said, listen, uh, if any of you is dealing with any type of kind of hidden sexual sin, you, you need to come clean. And ideally, you, you would have the, the courage, the character to even tell your bosses what you're dealing with. But if you don't, find somebody on the outside of the ministry. But you don't need to try to deal with it on your own, right? Because that's usually, I'll handle this, right? I'll find a way, I'll repent, I'll get it fixed on my own, and then maybe five years in the future after I've been clean and sober and everything's great, then I'll kind of tell my testimony one day and it'll be glorious. But the thought of bringing people in to help me, there's no freaking way I'm doing that, and that usually becomes your downfall. And one of the guys, I appreciate it, he asked a question. He said, what if somebody confesses something that's going to basically be a fireable offense? That's, that's a fair question, right? You work for a minister. I was like, that's a great question. I said... If you're dealing with something this bad, it would be better to lose your job and potentially save your soul in the long run, save your marriage, save your family, right? But in the name of, no, no, I don't want to lose my job. I want to appear to be a godly person rather than actually be a godly person. We make these stupid, sinful strategies and they backfire and they actually hurt us, okay? And when we're living by fear, not by faith, it will feel like everything is against us. Let me, let me just, you know, again, I've just given two pretty extreme examples. Let me just give a little milder example of how this can play out in daily life. This may or may not be a hypothetical example. Let's imagine that I'm having a very busy, very hard week, out of town, on the road, traveling, dealing with a lot of, you know, hard staff issues like that. And while I'm gone, like, to my wife, I say, listen, I got a really busy week this week, out of town, next week. And, and while I'm gone, can you please do all my laundry, iron all my shirts? You know, my wife has 101 great qualities. She hates to iron, okay? And, and she can be a little bit forgetful sometimes. And if I get back and it's like none of the ironing has been done, and I'm in a bad mood and I'm already tired and exhausted, in my flesh, the first thought that can go through my mind is something like, she doesn't care for me. She doesn't prioritize me. She doesn't value me the way she should. I'm sure none of you have ever had a thought like that about your spouse. But if I'm a little bit more level-headed, what I realize is my wife is, is, is great, but she's not Jesus, right? She has some strengths and weaknesses. And one of her weaknesses is she tends to be forgetful sometimes. So if she forgot to do the ironing, it wasn't necessarily a personal strike against me. Does that make sense? It was just part of the normal warp and woof of her life. Every once in a while, she'd forget something. But listen, if I'm in the flesh, I take it really personal. Ever been there? But in faith, I can be like, oh, she just forgot. What's the big deal? I'll remind her it's not the end of the world. Okay. In the day-to-day -day life, do you tend to live driven more by fear or driven more by faith? Okay, so we have some great examples here of men driven by fear. It's not working well. Now let's look at some examples of men living by faith. Okay, so chapter 43. Again, we're, we're skipping around because we're reading so much of the story for time's sake. Look at verse 3. Judah spoke to him. So this is Judah. Now later on in the famine, they've run out of food. Okay, J Judah goes to speak to Jacob. 
Judas spoke to him, however, saying, The man solemnly warned us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you do not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Then Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly by telling the man whether you still had another brother? Now just pause. Do you see what I'm talking about? When you try to live by your own strategies in life, you will be overwhelmed and you'll feel like the whole world is against you. The brothers didn't try to, you know, screw Jacob over when they said, we have another brother home. They were just in the heat of the moment trying to say, we're not spies, we're a normal family, we got a dad at home, we got a little kid brother. But Jacob takes it so personal because he's living by fear. But they said, the man questioned particularly about us and our relatives saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? So we answered his questions. Could we possibly know that he would say, bring your brother down? Judah said to his father Israel, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. We as well as you and our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. For if we had not delayed, surely by now we could have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags and carry down to the man as a present a little balm and a little honey, aromatic gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money in your hand. Okay? Just, just, I want you to see what's happening here. Where does real faith come from? It comes from two things. Believe. It comes from hearing a trustworthy promise and then being willing to take a risky step of faith based on that trustworthy promise. Does that make sense? I mean, Jacob said, Dad, we're going to die if we don't go get more food. I promise you, if you will put Benjamin in my care, I promise you that I will bring him back. And if not, I'll bear the blame forever. I mean, he's basically making a vow of his life. And finally, Jacob is going to come out of this fearful, sinful, self-protective strategy and say, okay, I'll do it. Now, if we're going to do it, let's do it the right way. Let's do it the best way. And he starts putting together a plan. Let's, all the nice food we happen to have here they don't have in Egypt, let's send them a big gift. There's nothing wrong with using the brain and the resources that God has given you in non-sinful ways to try to make life work better. Okay? The problem is when you start crossing lines in sin to make things work. But I want you to look at his heart behind all this. So keep going to verse 12. Take double the money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and arise and return to the man. Now, if he just stopped there, it might seem a little man-centered. But look at what he's going to say in verse 14. And may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man so that he will release to you your brother and Benjamin. As for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present and they took double the money in their hand and Benjamin and they arose and they went down to Egypt and they stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his house steward, bring the men into the house and slay an animal and make ready for the men or to dine with me at noon. Now look what happens here. Look back at verse 14. Jacob's saying, let's make the best plan we can. Legitimate plan, not a sinful plan. But then we're not going to open our plan. And this, this is key and in my experience, your average middle-class Western Christian misses it. Because the average middle-class Western Christian says, I'm going to make the best plan I can. 
And they don't say this out loud, but what they say in the depths of their heart is, and I'm going to trust in my plan. But the, but the way of true faith says, I'm going to make the best plan I can, and then I'm not going to hope in my plan at all. I'm going to hope that God just has mercy on me. There's real genuine faith. And that's what he's doing. He's saying, guys, let's make the best plan we can, but then we just need to hope that the one true God has pity on us and has mercy. That's our only hope. They send him down. And, and, and guys, did you see the surrender? You want to know what true faith produces? It produces true surrender. Even if God doesn't bless my plan, I will still hope in him and trust him and honor him. Guys, this is why the prosperity gospel preaching is so wrong. If you just have strong enough faith, God will give you whatever you want. He'll give you the new Ferrari or you'll instantly lose 50 pounds or whatever. And you read the Bible and sometimes that seems like it's true in a couple of places. But then when you read the whole breadth of scriptures, like, no, 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 no. The best kind of faith is the faith that Job had. Job chapter 13, verse 15. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. If God doesn't answer any of my prayers, in fact, if God does the opposite of all my prayers, I'll still praise him. That's real faith. I'm so committed and surrendered to you. Yes, I'm telling you what I want. Yes, I have plans. Yes, I have desires. But I hold them very loosely. If you say no to all my plans, all my desires, I still worship you. That's true God-centered faith. Okay? And just, guys, answer in your own heart. Is there any place in your life where maybe God is asking you to be more open-handed, to be more surrendered, to say, here's what I want God to do. But even if God doesn't do it, I'll still trust him. I'll still bless him. I'll still honor him. Skip into chapter 44 down to verse 16. So Judah said, what can we say to my Lord? Speaking to Joseph, what can we speak? And how can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. Now, again, I'm skipping stuff for time's sake, but do you remember kind of the second part of Joseph's test? This time he doesn't necessarily put treasure in everybody's bag. He just puts it in Benjamin's and he lets them leave and then he chases them down and they open the bag and Benjamin has the stuff and he's like, well, he's got to go to prison. And all the brothers, but Judah as the leader says, don't, don't put him in prison. You got to put somebody in prison, put me in prison. Take my life. And he says, listen, we're, we're sinful people. We deserve this. I love, I love that third sentence he speaks in verse 16. And how can we justify ourselves? Guys, when's the last time you confessed some sin to anyone and there was no excuses or explanation? You understand what I mean? I mean, again, your average middle-class Westerner, if they ever do get around to confessing or repenting, there's usually so many explanations Excuses that it almost isn't any type of repentance anymore. You understand what I mean? Yeah. Early in my marriage, my wife and I fought a lot, and we're both pretty type A, so our fights were not, you know, very mild. They were like angry, yelling matches. And, I mean, I'm a Christian minister, so I would get convicted at some point and I would try to repent. But I wanted the repentance to be very fair, very judicial, okay? <laughs> 
So typically, this is the way it would go. Hey, I know I was just screaming at you five minutes ago, but I went and spent a little bit of time in prayer. I'm very sorry. You know, I committed these three sins, A, B, C. I'm ready to confess and repent to you if you'll forgive me. And oh, by the way, you committed these sins, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And uh, if you could just go ahead and confess for all your sins, I'll forgive you and then we can be reconciled. Now, anybody will take a guess on how that went over? Okay. About like a lead balloon. And what she would literally say, you know, still with the tears and the makeup running down her face was, you were just screaming at me at the top of your lungs like literally five minutes ago. And now you want to come in here and act like my spiritual leader? You know, and she had this phrase she used to say. She used to say, my emotions are not a light switch. I can't just flip them on and off. And what did me and all my godly wisdom respond? Well, there you go again. Just add another sin because I'm trying to obey Ephesians 4. Don't let the sin go down in your anger. And obviously you're not obeying that verse. So, again, it didn't go well. It just made things worse. Because really, I mean... Was there any genuine faith and repentance in my heart? Yeah, I mean, I I was a Christian. But it was pretty bare minimum. And I'll tell you what there was a lot of that I didn't see early on, but there was a lot of self-righteous Pharisaism. Subtly, I wasn't saying this out loud, but I was probably saying in the back of my mind is, you know what, I'm better than you. I'm godlier, I'm more mature And I hate the fact that I'm having to be the first one to repent because I still want to kind of wear my spirituality badge. So I'm going to make sure when we do this, it's exacting. I'm going to confess exactly what I did and not an ounce more. And you better meet me in the middle and confess your sin. Any of you ever tried that in your marriage? How'd that work out for you? Now at some point, about a year, year and a half in, I got broken enough and desperate enough where I said, really between me and the Lord, this is not working, right? This strategy is making things worse. It was a suicidal strategy, although it had a lot of spiritual veneer on it. And so I got to the point where I was like, you know what? I am going to work on my sin. I am going to confess my sin. I am going to repent of my sin. I am going to pray about my sin. I'm going to talk about my sin. And I'm going to shut up about her sin. And and you know what? I can't control her. I can barely control myself. But with the help of the Holy Spirit, I got a chance of controlling myself. And I got so much of my own sin, I need to quit worrying about hers and just focus on mine. And basically what I was saying, I didn't use these exact words, but in some sense I was like, you know what? If my marriage is an absolute failure because she never changes, but if I can be right with the Lord Jesus because I'm doing my best, I can live with that. Does that make sense? Now, how do you think that went over? In the beginning, nothing changed. (laughs) But after, I don't know, it was three or four months of me really just saying, I'm not coming after her. I'm not trying to be the lawyer anymore. I'm not trying to be fair. I am just going to humble myself and repent and focus on my own stuff. Number one, the sanctification in my own life started going through the roof. I started really getting more humble, more gentle, more patient, more kind. All those biblical things that Jesus used to say to the Pharisees, go find out what this means. I love mercy more than sacrifice. And what happened to my wife was, 
when I was this is this is just free marriage counseling, okay? When I wasn't always in her face telling her what she did wrong, even if I was right, and let's just be honest, I still think I was right. <laughs> it gave her the emotional space to kind of get before the Lord and get humble and work out her own stuff when she didn't have a personalized prosecuting attorney walking around trying to remind her all the time. And then she started dealing with her stuff. And you know, I tell people, it's like, our first year and a half was really bad. It's like we dug a hole. The next year and a half was really hard because we were coming out of the hole. You know, but the last 20-so years have been great. Okay? <laughs> Haven't been perfect, but it's been a heck of a lot better. All right? Hey, quit playing the self-justifying games wherever you're doing it. And say, I'm going to obey. I'm going to repent. And if I'm bereaved and God doesn't answer any of my prayers, I'm still going to praise him because he's worthy of it. When you start living with that kind of faith, you know what it leads to? It leads to freedom. It leads to real freedom. Okay? Freedom from your idols, freedom from sin, freedom from fear. Free- Listen, guys, in some sense, when we're, when we're doing our own sinful self-protective strategies, it's a burden you were never meant to bear. It's a crushing burden to feel like you have to orchestrate your whole life and everything that intersects with your life to make it work for you. You can't bear that burden. God's supposed to bear that burden. So when I just say, hey, I'll do my part of faith and repentance and let God run the universe, things work a lot better. So let's look at the freedom they start to experience. Flip over to chapter 45, verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. I mean, don't you wish you could have been a fly on the wall for this? Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves. I love that. Depending on our personality, some of us tend to get really grieved when we sin. Some of us tend to just get angry at ourselves. Because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Guys, what we're about to see here is maybe the best picture, humanly speaking, of how you are to practice forgiveness with somebody's repented. You don't sweep their sin under the rug like it didn't happen. Like, oh, what you guys did was horrific. It was evil. And yet, God's so good, he superintended a better purpose even through your wickedness. Three different times you're going to notice him say, God sent me. Verse 6, For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by great deliverance. I mean, I wonder how much time Joseph had spent meditating, God, why did you do it this way? And he started to understand, you had a plan to preserve my family. And so it makes it worth it. Verse 8, Now therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will also provide for you, for there are still five years of famine to come, and you and your household and all that you have would be impoverished. 
Let's get down to verse 25. Then they went up from Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. They told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and indeed he is a ruler over all the land of Egypt. But he was stunned, for he did not believe them. When's the last time God did something so good in your life that at first you're like, I don't believe it. It can't be true. It must be a mistake. When they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Then Israel said, it is enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. You realize what he's saying there? He's like, you know what? At this point, God's been so good to me. I can drop dead and I'll be a happy man. What more do I want from life? I want you to think about the hardest thing you've ever been through in your own life personally. Or, if you feel like I've had actually a pretty easy life thus far, praise the Lord, think about somebody you know close that's been through something really hard that seems tragic, that seems unfair, that seems unright. If Romans 8, 28 is really true, and you or the person you're thinking of is a believer, that wicked thing, God will turn for the good at some point. Might take 20 years. 20 years he hasn't had Joseph. 20 years he thought he was dead. I mean, this was essentially an experience of having somebody resurrected from the dead 20 years later. Okay, It's more than enough. Now, if you're like, I don't think I've ever experienced anything like that. It might be you're too young. It might be that you're not taking the risky steps of faith the Lord is calling you to in His purposes so that you can experience things like this. It might be that we haven't reached the place of real surrender of if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. It might be that you're still too dependent on your own sinful self-protective strategies and you haven't gotten to the place of, I'm going to make the best non-sinful plan I can and then just look to the mercy of God Almighty. Because that's when you experience this kind of stuff. So where in your life might God be calling you to surrender more, repent more, trust Him more, and take a risky step of faith, like sending your Benjamin down to Egypt? No. Um... The rest of the story, chapter 50. They all go down. For many years, they all live in prosperity, right? I mean, their big brother, little brother, he's bigger than them in power, is the second in command of the most powerful nation on planet Earth at that time. They got plenty of food. They got everything. Joseph's taking care of everything. And then Jacob dies. And guess what's going to happen to his brothers? Look in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? They're still living by fear. You see that? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged before he died saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg, you the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, for they did wrong. And now, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of God, of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Listen, there's no record Jacob ever said this. Because it's highly likely Jacob never said this. Because in their fear, they think, oh no, we got to come up with a new plan to protect ourselves. We had daddy. Joseph wasn't going to kill us while daddy was alive. 
Now daddy's dead. New plan is, let's tell a lie. Right? We can all identify with this, can we not? Right? We could just say, next week is testimony time. Everybody only gets two minutes. Get up here and tell a story of when you told a lie, maybe a little white lie, but you told a lie to protect yourself. And we all got one, right? Okay? That's one of the places we like to run the most quickly. What's going on here, guys? I had a friend that uh, he had an affair. He repented. His wife said, I'm willing to work with you, take you back. We were going through the counseling process, but all sorts of sin and shame. And he, he could never really receive the forgiveness. And at one point, I'm talking to him and talking to him about the parable of the prodigal son, right? Seems like a pretty good one. And he said, I know. He cut me off in the middle of it. This guy's been in church for years. And he said, I know the parable, right? And he said, but every time I hear it, he said, I never say this out loud, but in the back of my heart, what I always say. He said, when I imagine myself being the prodigal, coming back to Father God, here's the, it's like, we'll see. We'll see. Is God really going to love me that graciously? Is God really going to forgive me that freely? We'll see. You see the doubt? Yeah, maybe that gospel stuff applies to other people. But does it really apply to me and all my wickedness and all my shame? Is there any place where you or I am doing that with the gospel? With gospel truths? We'll see. Does it really apply to me? Okay. And in some sense, that's what the brothers were doing. Is Joseph really this forgiving? Is he really this gracious? Or has he really just been holding the grudge the whole time, waiting for dad to die? Now, why does Joseph weep? The same reason that I think the Holy Spirit is grieved sometimes is because He knows what amazing love and mercy and pity He's giving them and they're not experiencing the full depths of it because they're still living by fear. I mean, what a terrible thing. What a terrible thing. Have you ever had this happen with one of your kids? I know I did when my kids were about y'all's age. Maybe one of your kids did something really bad. And you spanked them really hard. And they deserved it really hard. You weren't in anger, right? It was the one spirit-filled moment you ever had in your life, all right? It was righteous anger. You spanked them. You sent them to their room, whatever. But then they repented. It was over. But then like later that night or the next day or something, they came out and you could tell they were still kind of distant or cold or, I'm so sorry, Dad. And, they, and you, buddy, it's over. I mean, I've almost forgotten about it. I love you. I like you. I'm not thinking about you in light of that one incident. You're my son. You don't have to apologize anymore. You don't have to pay penance. You don't have to mope around here. Enjoy my favor. It grieves your heart, does it not? Because you're like, I've got all the love I know how to have for you, little person. I'm doing everything I know how to do to show it to you. But you're not drinking it in. Why? Because that little person is living out of fear. What if dad doesn't really love me? What if mom doesn't really forgive me? And so many times we do this with the Lord Jesus. Okay. I got this uh, college guy I'm working with right now. He's got some sin in his background. It's, it's pretty bad. It's pretty shameful. He's talked to me about it and talked to anybody else. And part of what I'm talking to him about is you, you, need, you need to repent. I mean, you need to talk to the people you did this sin with, you did this sin against. You probably need to talk to a counselor. Da, da. And he's like... I'm not talking to anybody about this. I, I hate talking to you about it. 
I think this guy's a Christian. I think he's a very young and mature Christian. What's he doing? His sinful, self-protective strategy is, I just won't tell anybody. I will just make sure the circle is so small, nobody knows about the shame of my past, and then I can kind of hold my head high when I go out to life. And you know how I was working for him? Terribly. There's so much shame. There's so much guilt. There's so much fear. There's so much lack of confidence. There's so much awkwardness. And one of the biggest things that he says to me all the time is like, yeah, I believe all this stuff in the Bible, but I don't feel like God personally loves me. I don't feel like I... He's like, I believe God has a personal relationship with people. He's like, I believe God has a personal relationship with you. I don't really believe God has a personal relationship with me. I don't experience that. Hmm, I wonder why that is. Because at a very practical, functional level, you're trying to save yourself. You haven't fallen fully on God's mercy yet. Now, a couple more verses, we're done. Verse 19, But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I am, I am God's place. Total side note, guys, when you hold on to a grudge, you're essentially taking the right of God. I have a right to keep judging this person. And Joseph's like, I don't want that right. I don't have that right. As for you, again, you meant evil against me. I'm not sweeping your sin under the rug. It was wickedness. It was evil. But God meant it for the good in order to bring about the present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Okay, Now, two last thoughts and we're done. To the degree that the gospel truth really sinks down deep, there should be no fear in our life. Fear the Lord. Worship the Lord. But you don't fear anything else. Because I'm living by faith in the one who's controlling all of life. I don't have to micromanage and try to orchestrate all the circumstances of my life to have to play out right. Because he's already done it for me. And guys, the, the greatest example of this is think about the Lord Jesus Christ on planet earth going to the cross. I mean, that was the ultimate surrender. That was the ultimate step of faith. That is the ultimate anti-prosperity gospel passage, is it not? Because the Lord Jesus, the only sinless person to ever live, the only person to ever live who had perfect faith, got in the garden and said, Hey God, there's only really one thing I want. I want to not have to go to the cross. Yet true faith is the kind of faith that says, Yet not my will but thine. Even if you slay me, I'll still trust you. And the Lord Jesus literally hung on the cross while he was being slayed by the wrath of the Father. And he trusted in our place. And so guys, whatever hard thing in life we ever experience where it might feel like the Father is slaying us, the Father is angry at us in a judicial way, the Father is punishing us, the Father is casting us off, the Father's ignoring us. The Father's not listening to us. The Father's not answering our prayers. It may feel very true in the moment, but at the deepest level, it's never true. It's never true. He's always doing what's best for us. Because the worst for us, hell, which we very much deserve, already got to take care of on the cross. And so now all we get are all the good benefits that Christ has won for us. 
Let's go and live in that faith and freedom. Lord Jesus, our sins, they are many. Your mercy is more. Where our sin abounds, your grace superabounds. Where our sin and shame and guilt and fear seem to rise like the Himalaya mountains, the floods of your grace and mercy and pity and compassion rise even higher. I pray for myself. I pray for everybody hearing this. Would you grow our faith to trust you, to believe you, to hope in you, to rest in the finished work of the cross and the resurrection, even in the darkest night of the soul, even when it feels bleak, even when it seems impossible. Help us trust you. Help us surrender. Help us take the risky step of faith. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.